0: Well, good morning, Bethel. Are you thankful for the rain this morning? Let me let me rephrase. Allergy sufferers, you thankful for the rain this morning? Hallelujah! Yes, I nearly turned uh, charismatic in our house this morning. Um. If you would open your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, that's where we're going to be this morning. It was fun singing that last song. Uh, it reminded me of a story uh, with my oldest uh, son, Aiden. He's 14 now. Uh, one day he came up to me, and uh, I think he was four or five at the time, so this was a while back. And he said, Dad, um, is it okay when we pray to call God my gaudy? Uh, you know, kind of puzzled at that, like, where does where that coming from? And I couldn't come up with it, so I asked him, what do you mean, my gaudy? And he goes, you know, that song, my gaudy was, my gaudy is, my gaudy, right? <laughs> ah, all right, I get where this is coming from. So it was kind of sweet on one hand, because he was wanting to know how he can appropriately pray to God. And in his own heart, there was sort of a dual question of, is it okay? In other words, I'm praying to one and I want to be reverent. And on the other hand, I also want to be tender and affectionate. And, and in a sense, the term my gaudy was sort of endearing or appealing to him, which I thought was kind of sweet. And, and yet Jesus tells us when we pray to, to God, we're able to say what? Abba, Father, which is the child's way of saying Daddy. And so we had a great talk about that. You know, uh, there's, there's ways that God has given us to address him. He is high and lifted up, but he's close. He is near, and he cares for us, which is pretty cool. So let's pray uh, to our God, to our daddy, and uh, ask for his help as we study together. Uh, Lord, what a beautiful day. It's overcast, and it's cool, and the pollen's washed out of the air, and I rejoice. <laughs> I rejoice, Lord. I know that you are good all the time whether it's cloudy or whether it's sunny, whether life is going well in my eyes or poorly in my eyes. God, you are good all the time. I declare it to be true, especially in times when it's difficult to believe. I pray, Lord, that as we come now to your word, uh, that we would continue to see you as both high and lifted up, and yet we would also see you very near. May we learn uh, from the scriptures on who you would have us to be And that that might emanate from a great understanding of who you are and your goodness to us, especially poured out in Christ Jesus. So guide our study. Illuminate the truths of your scripture to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's graduation time for some. Some that's already behind you. Some of it's still maybe a little bit ahead of you, a couple days in the future or whatever. But this is sort of the season that we're in, and one of the popular verses that sort of creeps up this time of year on cakes and cards and balloons and wherever else you is you see this passage, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, right? Which says, "For I know, you guys know this one. For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans to prosper you and." Not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future. And what a great passage. It's right, so encouraging. We think, oh, this is really good. And it's what we want to use to pass on to other people. It's, it expresses sentiments that we have for graduates or anybody sort of moving on from one stage to another. And we kind of want to lay hold of these truths as though they were written directly to us and as though they were true universally to all people at all times at all places. Uh, but as many of you know... This particular passage is on the list of those in the Scriptures which are most commonly used inappropriately or out of context, frequently misunderstood, often misunderstood. In fact, more often misused than used rightly. Uh, In actuality, this particular message, this, this verse that I've just read to you, is given to the southern nation of Judah as they are going into Babylonian exile. And that exile is not just incidental or accidental, it is directly from the hand of God. It is a punishment. It is a consequence for their idolatry and their indifference to the Lord and their continual disobedience. God is judging the nation through this exile. And yes, he gives them this encouragement in sort of the midst of it, but maybe the the better way of thinking about this assurance that's given is in the context, maybe the way a parent might say right before discipline, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Or I love you now, I'm going to love you through the discipline, and I'm going to love you afterwards. It's that kind of assurance, but it's given in the context of really unsettling, difficult discipline in a difficult time. And so this is our text this morning. Judah getting ready to go into exile for 70 years. Assurance given in the midst of that. And this morning, this is our text, not because it lines up with graduation, but rather because I, I think it is helpful. Rightly understood, this passage is helpful to us as Christians in our day and age to think about how it is that we're placed in the culture that you and I are placed in. God was telling the Judeans here, don't listen to the prophets that are among you right now. That are giving you mixed messages such as this will be short and, and whatever else. A short time of discipline, whatever. But instead, God was preparing his people for the long haul of living in exile. He was setting them up for how to handle this time and this season that they were going to be in for a prolonged period. And so I think this particular passage is helpful for us because it helps us frame our posture towards the culture that you and I find ourselves in. I think it helps us answer this question and to envision what it might look like. Where is my mission field and how might I live in this particular context? Let me say it this way. I think that living in the United States today feels a lot less, at least in my own lifetime, feels a lot less like living in my own homeland. And it feels a lot more like living in exile. Uh, it feels less like we're in Jerusalem and more like we're in Babylon. Uh, so I, fi- I find some resonance with this particular passage here. Now let me, <coughs> let me give you a couple of disclaimers. At the outset, I'm not promoting here what is often referred to as replacement theology, that is somehow the thinking that the church has replaced Israel. Okay, that's not, that's not what I'm promoting this morning. Uh, neither am I promoting nationalism, which is a statement oftentimes that somehow America has got the corner on the market on what it means to be God's people or that we're the uniquely blessed nation among all those in the world. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Um, I'm simply acknowledging that it's more countercultural now to be a Christian in our nation than it has been in recent history. Is that fair to say? You experience that? Um, It's not that we've been carried off to a foreign land, taken captive, held against our will, but it does feel like a foreign culture has moved in and one that is against the Lord and has infiltrated and taken over and we feel more and more like captives in our own land. I think that's the sentiment that I hear from a lot of believers, and I would say I feel myself. Some of the things that contribute to this, I'll just run down a quick list, and this list could be a lot longer, but here's a couple of them. The rise of religious pluralism in our culture, which is sort of the, uh, the assertion that we have to be tolerant of all religions as though they were equally valid, even if they're in contradiction to one another. Uh, and not only do you have to be tolerant of them, but actually celebrate them, or somehow you're not being tolerant. There's the, the continued rise of scientism, which is sort of an a priori commitment to science as the only means of legitimate knowledge. Um, uh, in our, um, well, j- just, just in the last couple of years here, we have seen the traditional definition of marriage, which has existed for thousands of years, get struck down. That, that's, that's remarkable uh, when you think about where that sits in sort of the history of that definition. Uh, we continue to see rampant immorality. That's really nothing new. It's just a continuation of the way things are. We've seen the legalization of drug use. And most recently, uh, the, sort of the last wave is, I don't know what else to call it, but sort of gender indifference. That's what I'd call it, uh, gender indifference. Uh, Thursday's presidential announcement about public school bathrooms. Uh, many of you heard this, uh, the idea that now public schools, all public schools have to uh, allow for any student to... Um, be able to use whatever bathroom they identify with, or they'll lose funding. Uh, so that's where we are. Um, and I don't, I don't care to make sort of political commentary on all of these things. My, my point this morning is to address our own hearts and our own minds as we hit disappointing wave after disappointing wave. And I want to offer a bit of a warning to the church about our hearts, and that is this. We must resist the urge to respond in anger, and only in anger, and not be driven by love. In many, in many cases, I think the church today comes off more angry and hostile than it does grieved or compassionate. We have to resist the temptation to just be personally offended and for that to be sort of the first gloss of things, rather than being actually concerned for the devastation and the harm that these cultural shifts will wreak in people's lives. Do you see the difference? One is just this, this raw anger, this quick response. The other is being grieved and compassionate for what will happen in people's lives because of what, what's being chosen. And we can't be driven by hostility. We've got to be driven by compassion. If we seek to effect a spiritual change in people's lives, then our righteous indignation needs to be tempered. And we need to have an approach that has a long-term perspective. And I think this text speaks to this. Um, our voice needs to actually be carried by compassion for people who are choosing to receive less than God's best for their lives grieved for what it will mean and compassionate for the circumstances they find themselves in so i think of the mindset of jesus given to us in matthew 9:36 when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd And so as Jesus was, just as he was compassionate, so too we need to be compassionate, moved to our guts and grieved that people are going to receive these painful consequences in their choices. We need to understand that people that God loves are suffering. And that needs to drive our response. Uh, On one hand, this is nothing new, okay? Uh, And I want to remind us of that too. I think a lot of Christians these days are sort of hitting the panic button, And and I'll just be honest, things are frustrating, yeah? But let's take a a broader view, too, of church history. (laughs) There's been some more difficult times than present day, let's just say that. I'd invite you to explore. But throughout history, the people of God and the church have always had to wrestle with this question. And that is, how do we live winsome lives, committed to God, when our beliefs are against the grain of culture? How do we live winsome lives which are absolutely committed to God when our beliefs are against the grain of culture? How is it that we can be salt and light? How is it that we can be agents of influence and preservation and a compelling witness that illuminates truth rather than blinding people with it? And in answering that question, I think this passage in jeremiah twenty nine this often misunderstood passage has a lot to tell us and so i 'd ask you to turn your attention there jeremiah twenty nine one and uh, i'll i'll uh i 'll get to right away what I messed up in first service, which was uh, I forgot to go back and work on the pronunciation of these names, and I just sort of fell on it first service so i 'm going to probably skip over a couple of names. I apologize. But I'm not going to butcher them in front of you, okay? (laughs) So let's read with me here. Jeremiah 29.1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elash, son of Saphon, and to, and here we go, all these other people, and sent it to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now here's our verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Oh, how the verse takes on a different tone when we understand the context in which it's in, doesn't it? The first point I want to draw out for you is this. This is really the broad thing that I'm trying to present to us this morning. And that's that God's people can have a gentle and a faithful presence even in the worst of times. Even in the worst of times. Maybe even especially in the worst of times. Uh, The tone of the passage is really kind of interesting and a little bit surprising Uh, You might expect God to say something like, as they carry you off into exile, dig your heels in. Go limp like a two-year-old being carried, you know, out of the room. Or resist, you know, chant, whatever. And, And he doesn't do that. He doesn't load them up to be obstinate here. He commands these deported people who are going into captivity in a foreign land over those who have devastated them. He tells them in that context to go into this place and to settle into the community in a constructive and compelling fashion. Build homes, plant produce, and eat the food of the produce. These are, these are really simple things and yet what it betrays and what it shows is that God is telling them to prepare for a long-term strategy rather than just having a quick angry response Prepare for a long-term stay and a long-term impact. And so this long-term strategy really comes with an invitation to be culturally engaged without accommodating or without compromising. Now we've just spent quite a lot of, several months here studying the church in Corinth, right? And we know a lot about the compromises that happened there. The sin and the immorality of everything around them had come into the church. It had infiltrated and affected things. They had lost their beautiful distinction in and among the community where they were they had forfeited that and that's what Paul wrung them up for but here we see an example of a community that was to be placed and to stay and to set up with a long-term perspective to have a faithful ongoing presence as God's ambassadors We need to be part of our cities and part of the cultural activity wherever we can without compromising our faith or our convictions. We're called to do something which is so difficult. It is to live in persistent tension of being absolutely in the world and not of the world. And and that tension, I think, just gets stronger and stronger and we get pulled harder and harder. It's too easy. that The the temptation for some of us is to to say, I don't like the culture. I don't like what I hear. I don't like what I see. I just want to retreat. I just want to come over here where I'm comfortable. Where I've got my Christian friends, where things are conservative and safe, and we go into hunker-down mode. And that's one temptation. And the other temptation on the opposite extreme is to say, I love the culture. I can be a Christian and all of this is just fine. I'll be as accommodating as possible, right? And so we're, we can be pulled one way or the other. We're, we're we're meant to live in tension with this, beautifully distinct, but faithfully present. Beautifully distinct, not forfeiting that, but absolutely there, embedded in the culture. It brings up my second point: be a part of the city and a bar and a part of. The culture. I want you to consider, if you were being sent to a foreign mission field, just imagine yourself uh, imagine yourself in a foreign country, a foreign mission field, you're trying to gain a hearing for the gospel there. One of your natural approaches in that context would be to kind of read the culture, to see the things that are going on, and to try to figure out where you could find sort of a beachhead of, of common ground and influence, and where you could interact with people, where they are, and where they live, and, and how they move and be. And you would, you would try to establish that common ground, and then you would try to gain a hearing for the gospel. So you, you can kind of imagine this, right? And the question I sort of want to smack all of us with is, why don't we do that at home? Why don't we have a missional mindset at home? It's kind of funny that we always treat other places like they're uniquely the mission field when I find that increasingly the mission field is at home. Uh, I'll give you a, a bit of an example here. When I was uh, in high school, one of the real privileges I, I had was to go on a couple of short-term mission trips. And uh, we would go to tacati Mexico. And, uh, and there was a bunch of uh, basketball players in our youth group, and I was too. And... Um, and so we kind of thought, well, this might be a fun way to in, engage some of the youth in Tecate, Mexico. And so we would go, and we set up a basketball tournament. And we would kind of stage it with some provocative posters, like, come challenge the Americans at basketball or whatever. So we'd kind of throw out a little challenge. And they'd come down, and they'd throw down a challenge, let me tell you. And I would just say this. The international game of basketball is different, you know. I don't Fouls are... You know like non existent, um, we got pummeled um, and so we would start off with sort of this us against them competitive thing, and then, as the week would go on we would we would shift and we would say, okay, let's mix it up a little bit let's have a couple of the Americans and a couple of the Mexicans on the same team and And so we would do that, and it was great because throughout the week we would build a rapport on sort of this universal playing field, even though we couldn't always communicate effectively, we could say a lot to one another as teammates, competitors, and how we carried ourselves. And over the course of a week, we would gain a hearing for the gospel, and we would have people share their testimony. It was really fun to kind of watch that unfold and get to use something that God gave me a, you know, a passion for, and it was really effective. And I, and I just think those are the kinds of things that we can and should be doing we should be looking for those areas of common ground in our culture where we can engage and gain a hearing for the gospel. So let me give you some suggestions. Consider joining a soccer league this summer. And instead of maybe doing it all by yourself, grab two or three of your friends and sort of come in as a bit of a Christian cohort on this you know, rec league team. And, and, and play throughout the summer. Build relationships as you recreate together. Let them see not just your own witness and your own influence, but how you collectively love each other and demonstrate Christ together in and amongst your team. Or consider doing the Equinox Marathon, whether running or walking or crawling or however it is that you need to get her done. Uh, consider maybe one or two of you jumping into it and in training with, with two unbelievers. And again, take the time to do that together and build a rapport and build an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, For those of you who are sportsmen, whether you like dip netting or uh, you're bringing in your wood harvest for the year or hunting or something like that, consider going with an unbeliever and sharing that experience together and pointing out and acknowledging the glory of God and the natural world around you and the resources he's given to us. Act like this is a mission field here at home, because it is, and increasingly so. Uh, I'm a little concerned these days, as Christians get more and more frustrated with the waves of disappointment that come at us, that I think the presence that we're giving in our community these days, I think we look an awful lot like a militia. Angry, with a compound, membership, where we gather together, and retreat, and nurse our anger. I don't want to be a militia to the unbelieving world. They're the mission field. They're people that God loves, and they need the gospel. And I, along with you, there's things that frustrate me. Uh, It's good that you don't get my unadulterated thoughts here, you know, on some of the things that happen. But that's what lost people do. And they need to be found. And they need to find a savior. And they need to know the joy and the shalom that comes from being reconciled to God. And the solution is not in political initiatives and anger. It's not in ranting and frustration. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ which makes the worst of men good. And that is our hope. That is the hope for the world. And that's what we need to do. If we're going to have an effect... A spiritual effect, and we're going to change people's hearts and minds. It's going to start from the inside out, and we have to have a long term perspective, not just a quick rash response. Uh, And so I think the advice given to the Judeans here for their long term stay is helpful to us. He goes on to tell them, pursue fruitful lives, I would say, fruitful lives, build homes. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Now on one hand, there's not so much of a corrective for us here uh, in this verse by way of application because you all have been really proficient at marrying and having sons and daughters and kids and all the rest. The the children's ministry here has been Mm -hmm. bursting. Uh, Praise God for that. But in the broad strokes, I appreciate the encouragement that is here. The communication is get on with living life. So you're a captive. So you're in exile. So that's how it feels. Get on with living the goodness of life that God has given to you. Get married. Celebrate. Have kids. Build lives together. Continue even in captivity. Have fun. Laugh. Have homes that you practice hospitality. Be a celebratory people whose obedience to the Lord yields a certain richness of life that is compelling. Right? The darker the circumstance, the brighter the witness of those who are for Christ. Um. It's not that it's always going to be easy for Christians, but there ought to be equality about our living because we're participating in the way of life that God has prescribed. And there should be inherent goodness there and it should be visible. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Pleasing aroma. Um, Last week I challenged us. We cannot retreat from our culture or from our city and just hunker down and hide, but we have to maintain a steady and faithful witness. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not for your own personal accolades. The real shocker of this passage is that some people will or will not know the Father based upon our representation. And that's sobering. Thirdly, seek the peace and prosperity of The city is pretty obvious. It's right there for the taking. Let me just bring it home a little bit. This last week, the North Star Borough announced that it was receiving $2 million uh, of a reduction um, in funding uh, for the school district. You know, I was just thinking about what does a faithful presence response look like, say, from Christians, and I'm just kind of imagining out loud with you. It's not that I have a five-point plan that we're going to unfold here or something like that, but... But can you just imagine, let's say a church adopted two or three schools and said, we know you're hurting, we know there's cuts, but we got you. We got your back. So what we're going to do is we're going to show up and we've got 10 volunteers put us to work. Whether it's tutoring, coaching, assisting in a classroom, monitoring the halls, monitoring the parking lot. Where do you need help? We'll be helpful. We'll serve. We'll just show up. We'll, we'll be there for you. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like in the schools to to hear that that their help was not in tax dollars but in real lives influenced by Christ that are showing up to really love people and to help? Um, I appreciate this old quote and I have no idea who said it, but it's this, that we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And then it continues to say, neither do we want to be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. We're called to attention. What would it look like in our city to be a faithful presence, to be for its peace and its prosperity, not just in a single burst of reaction or a single press of response, but with an ongoing, long-term perspective, faithful presence of redemption. Those going into exile were specifically commanded, and this is amazing to me, they were commanded to pray for the city. It's easy to say, pray for your city. Imagine you're being carried off into exile by those who've defeated you. And you're being told, pray for those who just wiped you all out, killed some of your relatives, and are now carrying you off against your will to live in their place. i pray for them and pray for their good and pray for their prosperity. Uh, so this is not a less than, this is sort of an argument from a greater to a lesser. We need to be praying for our city. We need to be for its good in those areas that we have common ground. I love the quote by Oswald Chambers, which I've given you in your handout. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. It is the greater work. And I suspect that we don't believe that. It is the greater work. Finally, be comforted. Our hope lies beyond this place. There's a typo there. In your handout, it should say this place, not his place. Be comforted, because our hope lies beyond this place. Um, Judah was encouraged that though they had 70 years of captivity in store for them, that they were going to be called back home. And that God did have a long-term good in store for them. And that's where we get our verse you know, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That was to be their big picture understanding of things. And we have a parallel truth. Now, you and I are not given this sense that, oh yeah, after 70 years, it's all gonna be good, right? We're not told that. Uh, But I would just frame it this way. You know, by God's grace, maybe we get 70 years of life, maybe a little bit more, and the truth to all of us is that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, though we have a hard witness and serve as ambassadors here on earth, it's all good <laughs> when the Lord calls us home. Uh, and with that, there's a bit of a double, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we all, I hope, I hope, we all long for the Lord's return. Those are the good days coming when he reigns. When he is unopposed in his reign and his love and his justice flows throughout the city. Those will be good days. But it's also a deadline of sorts. It's glorious, but it's also final. It is the time when our opportunity to witness and bring others to salvation is over. Uh, And so even though the time lingers and it feels though it is long off, we're told in the scripture when it comes, it will come suddenly. And it will have felt fast. It's a deadline. And so I want to close. I just appreciate what we hear in in this passage of Jeremiah. I think it helps us to see our city as a mission field. Helps us to set up for a long-term impact, not just a short, short burst of anger or emotion. It helps us to envision what a faithful presence looks like in living a certain kind of life that is compelling in a culture that is at odds with our beliefs. We're not told to panic We're not told to run for the hills. We're not told to dig in our heels. We're told simply to dig into the culture and to be the light of Christ and to be the aroma of Christ in a world that is perishing.